0: I spit on your podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is the time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody knitting needles and Kelly steps away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion.
1: On this episode, we'll be discussing cosmic horror and the insanity through John Carpenter's *Prince of Darkness* and *In the Mouth of Madness*. So pick your poison and listen on, if you dare. <laughs> So, Kelly, why did we choose these films? So, I believe, you know, we chose these films because we didn't want
0: to choose the very obvious John Carpenter films, like Halloween, The Thing. You know, those are such well-known John Carpenter movies. We wanted to, you know, choose something that wasn't such an obvious, obvious choice, and then it turned out something that was unbeknownst to me that these are incredibly influenced by h.p lovecraft
1: yeah exactly and that is one of the reasons why i was very excited to choose these two films because we both know that i'm a really big fan of h.p lovecraft and love lovecraftian horror and so it was definitely something that getting an opportunity to be able to talk about these two films which i found in doing our research on these films that they're not often talked about and i feel like it would be really great to kind of open more of a conversation up about these two films and how interesting themes they have going on to them not only are there is this interesting lovecraftian element to them but they also do have quite a bit to say about like religion and god and women and all kinds of wonderful things
0: so we're going to start the episode off with a bit of a spotlight on the man, John Carpenter himself.
1: Yeah. So as you guys noticed that this month, not only do we choose Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness, but we also focused on the work of John Carpenter himself. And we all know him through his breakthrough film, Halloween, in 1979, which allowed him to establish a reputation for John Carpenter in horror and action genres. I'm not going to go into. The typical kind of like biography of John Carpenter or kind of what he does or who he is, everyone knows this. Like if you're not a horror fan, you know who John Carpenter is. If you are a horror fan, you know everything about John, about John Carpenter. So whatever anyone tells you, you don't know unless he has some deep, dark secrets he has yet to reveal to the world. <laughs> but <laughs> one of the things I want to focus on is not only how what influences his work, but how his work has influenced other people. And John Carpenter's work is quite unique. Um, he, the, From the 70s and 80s, we saw some really interesting films from him come out. And also, he was able to inspire other filmmakers, such as Jeremy uh, Solner with The Green Room and James Domenico with The Purge. To really
0: excellent excellent movies i have to say so that's a really cool thing that you added
1: exactly and so which is really interesting is when we watch a john carpenter film there's various elements to how he creates something on the screen so what john carpenter likes to do when he's establishing in his films is a geography so he likes to take long low scenes to establish a sense of foreboding and impending violence and we all can give um it gives the audience a lay of the scenery so we all recognize this in halloween the very first scene where we see him following michael young michael myers through the house and to eventually him killing his sister and then kind of pulling out to the end to see the young boy And that's actually very characteristic on John Carpenter and seeing quite a bit of all of his films. He likes to generate a sense of suspense. So there's always, if you notice something when we watch a John Carpenter film, is there's always a lot of withholding of the blood. And it's not a lot of outright violence. His films are not about the body count. They're always about the suspense that the killer could be anywhere and just waiting for you. And we see these in types of films like The Fog, Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Madness, The Thing, Halloween. Like All his horror films have this element to them. Even Christine, despite how cheesy that film is. <laughs> uh, another element of John Carpenter's film and uh, filmmaking and what makes him, distinguishes him among other Genre artist is his the sense of paranoia created by his electronic music. So John Carpenter is very well known for creating his own music and pairing him up with scenes that helped generate an idea of paranoia among the characters. And his characters are always left in a state of constant fear and uncertainty. So I'm I'm a big fan of his audios of his soundtracks. Um, I have one of his uh, his latest vinyl. Um, of the, uh, not the long lost uh, themes, but just all the different themes of the different horror uh, films. And you can always tell which one is which by the distinctiveness of each film. And you can always, and always, and whenever you hear this music, it always brings you back to a certain scene in a film of his. And that's what I find with a lot of his music. He's got a very common element of cynicism, humor, and use of blue-collar heroes. So we see what he does is he always likes to provide humor to provide a release from the tensions throughout his films. And most of his films, we see them through the lens of the working class, um, lower classes of members of society to see what the reality, to show us what reality really is to us. So it is an interesting element because we don't necessarily always see, a lot of films we're always seeing from like middle class or higher class perspective, but he always uh, really likes to focus on the lower class element. And we see a lot of other filmmakers who are being influenced by John Carpenter in that element so also another element is that John Carpenter was always a huge fan of westerns and so he's always bringing within his films the some kind of idea of a western element to his films and that's usually seen through having like a gunslinger so um, or you know a fort that's being besieged so that's very common in The Thing
0: and Halloween definitely assault on Precinct 13 the terrible ghost of Mars but that is a theme in that as well
1: (laughs) (laughs) exactly right and you always have that lone gunslinger so you always have the McCready you always have (laughs) (laughs) in all these elements of these films And then the last thing about a John Carpenter film is the economical storytelling. So his plots always remain streamlined despite the larger budgets that he's given. John Carpenter uses every penny he gets, and he's very stringent on locations so he can improve the storytelling of a small group of characters in claustrophobic locations. And so what I'm saying by that is that He focuses on characterization and development of the story, not about using the big budget to give us the huge bangs, the loud locations, to give us all kinds of different things to take us away from the story. We're able to really just get into it and really follow the characterization of the stories. And that's something that John Carpenter has been able to bring in all his films and has gone on to influence other filmmakers in, in our generation now. And so when people say like oh this film was very john carpenter like you can look at it and it's like okay yeah it has these very certain elements that make up a john carpenter film john carpenter is a
0: fascinating fascinating director just a really kind of cool guy and also he looks exactly like my dad so that's yes.
1: interesting. Oh <laughs> Put some yes, thick does.
0: rimmed glasses on my dad and let him grow in his sweet white mustache, and they would be <laughs> brothers or twins. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, so, I now that I have essentially seen every single John
1: Carpenter film
0: because I did four reviews on the four films of his I have not seen this month.
1: Yeah, um, you can now <laughs> officially say that you have seen all of John Carpenter's book. I have now
0: seen all, and there's a bunch that I have not re-watched in quite a while, but I have seen them all, so they're all in my brain somewhere. But I can honestly say that he definitely has created some of the most, you know, intense, imaginative, influential, and successful horror films. So we, don't, we try not to talk about Halloween too much, because everyone's talked about that to death, but it was hugely important. It was one of the most profitable independent independent films ever made, and that is kind of the movie that really got his career noticed. And just touched us in a little bit, but, you know, a John Carpenter film has... Obviously, incredible cinematography. He's so wonderful with the lighting and those long takes, wide shots, just everything about how he creates uh, a story is quite impressive. And he also has a variety of different narratives, and he has actually an incredible amount of commentary on the movies that he has social, racial, gender, sexual anxieties of our modern world. So, there's a lot going on in his movies. And I think the generalized horror fan may not fully understand or realize this. And I even sometimes don't realize. But again, over going through this month, it's been quite incredible to to learn more about him. I think he has a unique vision. His music, Jess loves it. I love it. I think that's actually one of my favorite things about a John Carpenter film is usually the music. <laughs> Un- unfortunately, there is you know a good portion of his work that... Hasn't seen an incredible amount of huge Hollywood or financial success. You know, The Thing, Prince of Darkness, Big Trouble in Little China. A lot of these movies that maybe they just, the audiences weren't ready for it at the time. And, you know, cult classics. And as time has gone on, they've gained a bit of a following. But overall, when they came out, people weren't that into them. Which is really too bad because he's so incredible. So we're going to talk about, or at least state, our top three John Carpenter films. Jess, you go first.
1: All right. So my top three are uh, The Fog, The Thing, and Prince of Darkness. I was... And oh, sorry.
0: Go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was, no, was I was just going to
1: say, I was surprised that
0: In the Mouth of Madness wasn't on there, actually. I thought In the Mouth of Madness would take the place of Prince of Darkness
1: yeah but there's this element of prince of darkness that is really eerie and creepy to me whereas in the mouth of madness like i really enjoy it because it is very lovecraftian in in nature and which i also really enjoy very much about in, in the mouth of madness but there's an element to it that bothers me and i don't necessarily know what it is and this is my second time watching it And I just didn't feel like it, like, this film still grabs me, but just not the way that Prince of Darkness does. Like, the second time watching Prince of Darkness, once again, I was glued to the TV and watching it and really getting involved. Whereas with In the Mouth of Madness, I got a little bored.
0: That's fair. That's fair. I can see that. That makes sense. Right. So my top three are The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and Assault on Precinct 13.
1: Okay. That, okay, so Assault on... Th- that surprised me about Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah. Why that one. Yeah. Yeah, that
0: was an incredible movie. Like I said, I have a review on it on the... On our website. But it's so... It's John Carpenter through and through without the, like, supernatural horror to it. Without being horrific. Okay. I recommend watching it. If you love John Carpenter, you will enjoy Assault on Precinct 13. I was super, super impressed and happy that I watched it. The score is iconic. It's gritty and wonderfully shot. All the things that make John Carpenter movie a John Carpenter movie. The old John okay. Carpenter movies anyways. Okay. So I think fourth would probably end up being Halloween or In the Mouth of Madness. But those were definitely my top three.
1: Oh, that's really cool. That's really interesting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I like a good action movie. Yeah,
1: no, no, fair enough, fair enough. People like action films. (laughs) So one of the things that I love and Kelly seems to like, but not really like, is when we call a film Lovecraftian, and that was something that when we talked about choosing these films, I was like, oh man, these films are great. They're Lovecraftian in nature. And Kelly's like, okay, I need to figure out and understand what this means. And so we're gonna talk about this. What makes a film Lovecraftian? And if you don't know about H.P. Lovecraft, you should go look him up. We will do a whole series on it. We will do a podcast episode on H.P. Lovecraft, but yeah. Yeah, I thought it was important to know because sometimes you hear that term kind of thrown around
0: a little bit. And I was like, I don't really understand what this means necessarily. Uh, For example, I watched a movie, The Endless, in the last year. And people call that Lovecraftian. And when I watched it, I didn't like it. And often I don't like movies that are, you know, within the theme of Lovecraftian style. I just end up feeling like it's a whole bunch of nonsense. But really, what does being Lovecraftian mean? So a film that is Lovecraftian in nature... ...has a sense of cosmic-ism... ...threat of global proportions... ...there's a seriousness in tone... ...a sense of foreboding... ...unconventional weirdness... ...there definitely can be a breakdown... ...of time, space, and reason... ...and all of this is a result of... ...diminishing or dethroning... ...of mankind's self-centeredness... ...which I think is fascinating... ...and overall... ...which I think is what I end up... ...disliking a lot of the time is that there's essentially there's, it, there's a focus on atmosphere and phenomenon over story and characters. And when I'm watching a movie for entertainment, I actually really want a good fleshed out story and really wonderful fleshed out characters. So I find those types of movies, they can sometimes, anyways, be not something that I'm super into. But that's, you know, a portion of what makes a movie Lovecraftian.
1: Yes, that's that's accurate, <laughs> for sure. Other elements that make a story Lovecraftian, and also how filmmakers try and portray a Lovecraftian element to the screen, is we see elements of this complete indifference. So, what I'm trying to describe is that when we have, like, we all know who H. P. Lovecraft is. We've all, and if well, I don't want to say we all know. Like people who know who H. P. Lovecraft is, they know what how his stories are like. They know what how they go. And when people like to write fiction um, influenced by Lovecraft in his writings, or like to portray a film influenced by Lovecraft in his writings, usually there's typically some form of incorporation of Lovecraft's characters from his own fiction, so from his own story. So, take Reanimator for an example. That was a re- that was a reinterpretation of the actual story Herbert West Reanimator. And it's actually really interesting when you watch the first film and then you watch Bride of the Reanimator, you can see where they are blending a bunch of the different reanimator short stories to make it a complete film. You can also tell that they use a sense of complete indifference. So, the sense that there's these unspeakable horrors that are uninterested in vengeance, but if you mess up, you're dead. So, in Lovecraftian horror, there is no room for error. If there's an ancient one who's invested time and energy into you to give you an ability to do something, you don't fuck up. You do what you're supposed to do, and that's it. If you fuck it up, they're going to come in and they're going to destroy you. They, and they're not doing it out of vengeance. They're just doing it out of the fact that you just not do what you're supposed to do, and they don't give a damn. They don't care about humanity. Humanity is, like, insignificant in the this, in this small realm of things. That's where that whole idea of cosmicism comes from. And now
0: Jess is going into it.
1: <laughs> She's getting into it. She's feeling it. I'm feeling <laughs> she it. I'm loves getting into it. it now. I love this stuff. So there's the whole idea of compulsion and curiosity. So many characters in Lovecraftian fiction are usually professionals they're either professionals or academics and they're always drawn to figuring out something that should never be figured out so we see definitely see this in prince of darkness you'll definitely see this in the mouth of madness these professional type people who are like no all life is rational we must understand these things and we must figure it out by science and but they're driven by this idea that they need to figure out this unknown entity that it, you you should just you should just leave alone you should just not fucking mess with because it's going to it's going to fuck you up in ways that you just don't know <laughs> Um, there's always this idea of heritage, so bloodline. so typically the sins of the mother or father visit upon the children. This is an element of theme seen a lot of Lovecraftian tales, and also kind of fiction that's inspired by Lovecraft. And always the sense of doom, that it, at the end, it all leads to doom, death, and destruction in the end. There is no ex- way of escaping it. So actually, this is quite hard for a lot of filmmakers to try and produce on the screen. And some people have been successful. John Carpenter as being someone who has been successful in being able to bring a lot of these themes to the silver screen. But there's other ones that are still, you know, they have they bring elements to it. But it's what they, they kind of there's kind of like these rules out there that if you want to bring a Lovecraftian tale to this to the screen, these are the types of things that you need to look at ambiguity information that is unknown and also denied by the protagonist as truth and not prepared for the inevitable consequences of such realization so this is what i mean the protagonist spends most of the time in denial of what they know and when they realize they had already known the truth is horrifying in the end Uh, this is actually something really prevalent in the movie called the uh, The void that i really like this whole sense of ambiguity and this whole kind of realization this whole kind of horror that they already knew from the very beginning and kind of falls upon them in the end I-, I love that the idea of landscape and um And mazes it's this whole idea of madness and confusion presented in the settings to reflect the character's state of mind so this is very well seen in in the mouth of madness that the whole landscape that the whole old house that the the Arkham Asylum the mansion that it's just a complete maze and everything is all over all over the place because it's supposed to be representative of what the character is feeling or this whole idea of descent into madness idea old and the aging so showing the way the state of things are so creates an unexpected tension in the sense of that when we're getting old and we're aging that things are decaying around us and a lot of times you'll see that in the way that the um um, how can I describe it? The setting changes throughout the film to go from, you know, looking new and pristine to getting older and older and decrepit. And just like, so once again, that's showing that state of mind, that, that state of unexpended tension coming up and that will eventually burst into this old way. And then of course negation. So the absence of positivity allows the reader to feel more prone to fear, anxiety, and sadness. A character is void of emotion. So this is very prevalent in a lot of Lovecraftian themes. You don't feel positive for these characters at all. I've read a lot of Lovecraftian stories, and I've seen and in, like in Lovecraftian work inspired like by other authors inspired by H.P. Lovecraft, and also H.P. Lovecraft. And when you read a story, you f- don't like you wonder: Do these human beings actually exist in such a way? Because they are almost void of emotion. But at the same time too you you feel for them and you feel that anxiety building in because you don't know what's going on because there is no positive outcome, there's no positive thing that's happening in the film or in the book to make you feel anything for this character. And so I think that's what's interesting and I think that's what really brings out a like a Lovecraftian esque type book or movie. Or any or anything really. So when you say something is crafty and it has all these elements of essentially just doom and destruction and that the world's going to end and you have nothing to do, you can nothing to do about it, go mad with it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Sorry, I just like rambled on there because I, I get quite excited about this type of <laughs> thing. So that brings us to our first film that we're going to discuss: uh, the, John Carpenter's *Prince of Darkness*. Proximity has the same dream. What is it? A secret that can no longer be kept. It started a month ago. What started? A change in the earth and the sky.
0: His power.
1: There's a weird locking mechanism. Looks like it can only be opened from the inside. A life. Light- Is growing out of prebiotic fluid. It's not winding down into disorder. It's self organizing. It's becoming something, right?
0: darkness i watched it for the first time ever in my entire life for this podcast it's always been on my list as many other movies are to watch and so i was excited about it i i knew a little bit about it because i've read about it throughout the years so i had never seen it so i was excited to watch something new because i love watching brand new movies to me so i was pumped i was super pumped about it
1: yeah same for me i watched this film about two years ago like i like i said i had gone as part of those one of those deals it was like halloween where it was like four films on one dvd and it had like prince of darkness serpent in the rainbow and two of uh, john Romero's zombie films and so that's when i watched it and the first time i watched it was on a rainy freaking day uh, i was knitting it was scary it was atmospheric as fuck and it was perfect i loved it <laughs> Amazing. So I was
0: quite actually blown away by this movie by the amount that I absolutely adored it. So I loved the music throughout the entire thing. The score is wonderful, and so John Carpenter. I loved the plot, the storyline to the whole thing. I loved the special effects of the movie. And I was actually really taken aback by how absolutely terrifying that movie is. There were moments in it where I actually felt some elements of fear, which mm. is hard to do for a 25-year horror fan. <laughs> and what was horrifying? Those dream messages. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh-uh. So it's kind of like in a found footage style. And the weird, like, radio signal voice and slowly opening up the doors to this church and i was like no no this is scary (laughs) um oh and yeah and there's so much going on there's so much going on in this movie uh i just found it deeply unsettling and i was just really blown away by how it looked how it sounded everything about it so i loved it
1: i'm i'm also a fan of this film like i said i like kelly i love the music i love the storyline i like the element of what it brings to kind of creating a new sense of evil in the world there are when i first when i watched the first time there were definitely some elements that scared me for sure the whole alice cooper and the um the, the zombies, the homeless zombies, the like you know, just, like, surrounding the church and just making it virtually impossible for them to get out and how deadly and terrifying that is. The scene when she, um, I think it's Rebecca? Guys, when she, when essentially when the evil goes into Rebecca and she's, like, gestating the evil in her body or mm. just like, oh, that is so disturbing. I feel so bad for that guy trapped in the room watching all this happen right now. <laughs> uh, I know,
0: right? And then there is, when they're looking out the window, that dude that was oh. killed. And there's that voice that, like, non-human but trying to be human yeah. voice. No. And then his body just falls Into apart. Into dead, dead, yeah. Dead, dead black eyes. Nope. <laughs> oh, my goodness.
1: Yeah. So, what was it? Was there anything that you <sighs> disliked about the film?
0: Actually, no. Not at this time. No. Mm.
1: I think for me the second time around watching it one of the things i kind of disliked about the film was some of the dialogue was a bit strange and i think more it's just more in the sense between the the doctor and the priest always talking to each other i'm like just some of the stuff they say to each other i'm like that just doesn't i don't understand what they're trying to say here what they're trying to get out but other than that i, I would say like earlier on I was like oh you know if they added a little bit more to the storyline it wouldn't make it stronger but I want to take that back and say like no I like the storyline as it is it leaves it up to your imagination as to what could have happened to her um her character in the end
0: definitely I agree I agree to that I think there was a right amount of plot to satiate me definitely good old prince of darkness oh so good that's why I made it into my top three it's just it's crazy crazy
1: <laughs> good film Ready for death. so it's really interesting that as I was saying earlier John Carpenter is one of the few directors who's really who's good at bringing cosmic horror as defined by Lovecraft to the screen so we're gonna talk a bit about that so Kelly I know you got some notes on this yes yeah, so something more stuff that I didn't really know about I truth be told
0: I haven't read any HP Lovecraft so I don't really know. I've heard about him, but I like I don't. That's not that's actually a very um, weak point in my horror fandom as H.P. Lovecraft. I've seen the odd movie, of course, um, but I haven't read anything and I don't know that much about him besides him not having any women in the stories and him apparently being racist. So those are just, like common things that people know about him. But any of the themes that are in, you know, Lovecraft tales and movies, this was all brand new to me, and it was absolutely fascinating. And one of the big things, and one of the themes of Lovecraft and now John Carpenter, a couple of these films, is the cosmicism. Cosmicism. So, what is that? I really needed to know. So, because that's going to be what cosmic horror comes from, right? So, it is the premise that human law, emotion, and interests are invalid and of no no significance in the cosmos. Humanity is insignificant from the cosmic perspective. Humanity has no purpose, and our annihilation would have no impact on the cosmos at large. There are cosmic beings, not gods or devils, and they are indifferent to us. And what H.P. Lovecraft said about cosmicism is to achieve the essence of true externality, whether of time or space or dimension, one must forget that such things, organic life, good and evil, love and hate, and all such local attributes of a negligible and temporary race called mankind have any existence at all. This is grim as shit. (laughs) How did I, how have I overlooked all of this? for all of these years because it's 100% right up my alley (laughs) and learning about what cosmic horror is and what cosmicism is I put into my mind like this sounds a lot like nihilism Mm. but you know I looked this up that so there's one important difference so cosmicism emphasizes the insignificance of humanity and its doings rather than absolutely just rejecting the possible existence of some higher purpose or purposes. So that is the significant difference between cosmicism and nihilism. And we'll totally get so much more into this when we do H.P. Lovecraft Month. There's so much that we could talk about, but it was so very cool. And I read, I found some work by a woman named Anna Powell, and she did a lot of work on... John Carpenter films you know spiritualism and film definitely a bunch on Prince of Darkness but overall like H.P. Lovecraft and John Carpenter. So where you know John Carpenter these two films in particular so how his style fulfills the kind of Lovecraft the Lovecraftian criteria for horror fantasy is that in these you know generally in these two films that Quote unquote, plot is everywhere negligible and atmosphere remains untrammeled. Which essentially means that, like I mentioned before, that like the narrative structure of the films is secondary to the film's, you know, portrayal of psychological states and atmosphere. We know other John Carpenter films like Halloween, The Fog, Christine, they have very they're very much like a, you know, has your regular kind of storyline regular kind of genre plot Um, but in these especially in uh, Prince of Darkness you know we really emphasize the psychological state of and the atmosphere of the people in that movie. It has a repetition of you know nightmare imagery and it draws a lot of uh, atmosphere because of that think about that gothic downtown church that basement, all those crosses everywhere. Then you have John Carpenter's like droning minimalistic score, right? So it's kind of like this wonderful mishmash of, you know, Lovecraftian styles. Um, So a connection between Lovecraft and John Carpenter are huge, especially considering they have a shared interest in the interplay between science and supernaturalism and i think that john carpenter was able to capture the essence of hp lovecraft hugely in his apocalypse trilogy
1: so in the apocalypse trilogy all three films have different production companies uh, cast and screenplays were all done by different writers yeah they all carry a common thread to them hp lovecraft and cosmic horror and we know that cosmic horror is mostly associated with Lovecraft, who H.P. Lovecraft himself was inspired by the early words of Algernon Blackwood, who, was a, who wrote short stories and was a novelist, and he was the most prolific writer of ghost stories, and William Hope Hodgson, who wrote many short novels linked to horror and science fiction set in the ocean and hp lovecraft was quoted as to now all my tales are based on fundamental premise that common human laws and interests and emotions have no validity or significance in the vast cosmos at large so cosmic core equals cold uncaring universe where humans are of no importance we are not the center of everything And so John Carpenter is inspired by a lot of Lovecraft's literature and while he did not do any direct adaptations his three films with apocalyptic horror all deal with humanity which has no chance of survival so I know we didn't talk about The Thing which is actually the very first film of this apocalypse trilogy but everyone's talked about The Thing great film in The Thing this the idea is the theme is a lot less is more subtle but the alien threat to self is prevalent. Prince of Darkness was not a successful film as a thing, but it was the linchpin to the. It's the linchpin to the whole trilogy. It is possessed homeless people, which, if you know the work of H. P. Lovecraft, we can associate him to a Lovecraftian cultist. There is a slumbering evil that mankind is not the center of the universe. There is an anti-god released from another dimension. In brackets, Elder Gods, and Mankind is losing a sense of self by possession by from by a devil by a devilish liquid. In the Mouth of Madness is considered the best of the Lovecraftian film ever. With many nods to him and references to his work, the man the main character is in a is found himself in the madhouse, insisting that he's not insane, which is definitely a huge trope of Lovecraftian literature, that all his protagonists usually start saying, I'm going to tell you a story, but I'm not crazy, but it's going to sound crazy. And you're like, uh, and then you're, as you're reading the story, you're like, I'm sure this guy's crazy, or maybe he's not crazy. I'm not sure. But we also see in In the Mouth of Madness, the very nature of reality is then questioned, especially when Trent, and we'll talk about this in the Mouth of Madness, sees this other element of reality, this other dimension of his evil. So, As quoted by Orion Gray, the creature from The Thing could replace you and mimic you perfectly. The Devil Liquid and Prince of Darkness could override your free will, but In the Mouth of Madness shows that you never really had any free will to begin with, which is very lovecraftian in nature. That in the end, when you realize that When you knew the truth the whole time it is horrific that you really had no means of survival to begin with that you were literally just fighting for your sanity fighting for an ability to maybe make yourself significant in face of something ultimately that thinks that you are insignificant damn so cool
0: prince of darkness There's so much, I believe, happening in this movie. What does 1999 mean? Stuff with mirrors. There's so much. And, you know, you could deconstruct those dreams in itself, right? So much going on in this movie that it's fascinating. I know there's a lot of articles and research out there about all these different aspects to it. But one of the things I definitely wanted to, to bring up was what I discovered when I watched it for the first time. So I read Jess's blog post, and if nobody has read this yet, I strongly suggest that you do. It is the one called The Original Dangerous Women and the Concept of Evil Women and John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Because it might be one of my favorites, she's done. And it's it's absolutely fascinating. And what's also really fascinating is how people can perceive aspects of a movie in different ways. So, yes, I definitely recommend everybody reading it because it's wonderful. And a little bit of the opposite of what I felt and saw when I watched the movie. I had read Jess's blog post before seeing the movie. Oh. And, yeah. <laughs> okay. Because so I think I read it, like, the day... I Sorry, I, I think I watched the movie the day after. You probably put it out on a Saturday, and then I watched the movie on the Sunday. Yeah. Generally... You know, going into it, there's four women in the movie and Jess makes some really interesting observations uh, within the movie itself with regards to the women. So what we see is that the women get infected first with this evil liquid. Susan gets infected, then she infects Lisa. Kelly then gets infected. Kelly, that's <laughs> me. She's the chosen one. She has that mark in her arm, which is the magistrate's staff. I couldn't really find too much information about that. But, um, and then you have Danforth, who's the ginger, who is the remaining uninfected woman. So, all the women get infected first. They infect other women. It seems as though men are the ones that are being killed the most. They either get killed or they kill themselves. Um, they kill the men. And I thought that that was really interesting. And then we have uh, one of the main male characters, which is Donald Pleasants, who usually is so wonderful. And his character is so weak. And so he is the priest who you would think yes, would be a yeah. very strong character. But he's actually quite useless. Until the women take it upon themselves to start the end of days. And then Danforth decides to end, you know, the beginning of the evil coming into the world. So, you know, we have men having very weak or insignificant roles in the movie. And then we have our main guy, who's a priest, who you would think, like I said, would be so strong. And he's actually just, he's feeble, he's weak, he's horrified. He's just trembling in the corner. Jess mentions that in the blog post. Jess, please, yes, can you do a summary of your blog post?
1: Yeah, so what I saw about this film, and saw when I was watching this film, was this interesting idea that it is the four women who are possessed, and they bring about, they are the integral parts of the film, they bring about their plot, They and, and none of them survive in the end, and what I wanted to challenge was this idea of, so feminists have been trying to challenge this idea, this concept that, in fundamental religious religions, women are blamed for all evil in the world. And so, when I was looking, when I was watching this film, I thought it was interesting how there is these elements of both e- the stories of Eve and Lilith portrayed, in four female characters of Susan, Lisa, Kelly, and Danforth in helping bring about this evil into the world. And yet at the same time too, this idea is being enhanced by the way the priests and the physicists are treating the women throughout the film. Hey, where's the interesting thing? All four of these women are smart fucking women. They're all scientists. They're all leaders. Like in the way, they're kind of like they're either students or kind of leading their field in some way, shape or form. They're strong and capable women and they're serious about their work and they're not, they're not visibly phased by the evil revelations unlike their male counterparts who like cry, they want to abandon the project, they want to get the fuck out of Dodge and it is them who become possessed by the evil first they are the ones who are killing the members of the group they're the ones who are possessing other people and transferring the evil to the other to the other people within the group to help bring about this end of days and that and so it's like what is it about women that is this this apparent weakness in uh, various women that makes them the right vessel for evil? And so I was just so I was talking about how we looked at the ideas of Adam of Eve and Lilith, the you know the first uh, considered the first original dangerous woman to have brought evil into the world by you know Eve tempting Adam with the apple of knowledge and getting him to eat it, and, and thus leading him in being forced out of the Garden of Eden. And then the idea of Lilith being a strong independent woman who refused to uh, be uh, subjected to her. Her, to her partner Adam and she st- raised up to herself and in the end they talk about how she birthed like a hundred demons into the world so I thought well, this is really interesting how these all these four of these women are the ones who are the main protagonists bringing this evil into the world and they have to go up against the patriarchy which is represented in the Catholic Church in the in the concept of Father Loomis who like Kelly said the entire time he's paralyzed by fear and it's not until Danforth takes action herself to get rid of the evil and what does uh father loomis do to prevent to stop to what's his part he just smashes the mirror and essentially traps her in there and then at the end we kind of see that maybe she was taken over as well so i was kind of like trying to really focus in on this idea of how in society and in religion in a lot of uh, fundamental religions women are seen as the bringers of evil that there is something fundamentally wrong or something wrong within women that allow us to be susceptible to other evils and to bring it into the world because we are you know within our wombs that we can you know because there's a scene where kelly she's just just dating this evil in her belly and at one point she looks pregnant it looks like she's going to give birth to something but it ends up just taking over her whole body and she becomes that manifestation of the evil And you're thinking, okay, like, it's this just constant idea that women bring evil into the world. And this is where I was kind of like, in seeing I saw this in this four different characters in films, not something I agree with. I actually agree the, the complete opposite, but I thought it was this interesting concept that was brought about in this film.
0: Completely, completely, right? And I just thought it was so amazing that you, you know, connected all those dots and had those observations. So when I was watching it, I felt the opposite. I completely see where you're coming from. Christianity has I know how it sees women. It's terrible. It's about a repression, oppression and taking the power out of women's hands and giving that to to men. So, what I saw was that the women were getting infected first. They were they were the ones bringing about bringing about you know, the end of times and bringing the evil into the world because they are so strong. Mm. So even though it's not, they mention like Prince of Darkness and Satan, stuff like that. It's more of the anti-God. So just that the, that it's just an evil present. And perhaps that is what has shaped the world in the beginning anyways. And we know Christianity has been terrible to women. However, when we were doing the research and talking about witches in October, I learned more about satanic feminism and it's really stuck with me. And every now and then I just keep going back to it because I find it fascinating. So Satanism as opposed to Christianity has always valued and empowered women. So I feel like, you know, within Christianity, it's the opposite. Women are slaves. We're oppressed. But with Satanic Feminism, and if folks haven't heard this term before, it's coming from this really, really, well, a lot of information from this really great book. It's called Satanic Feminism, Lucifer as the Liberator of Woman in 19th Century Culture. So it is essentially saying that we know, so according to the Bible, Eve was the first to heed Satan's advice to eat the forbidden fruit. The notion of woman as the devil's accomplice, as you know, is prominent throughout the history of Christianity. Like Jess said, we are the bringer of evil. We are inherently bad, and they have used the Bible and Christianity, all these beliefs, to legitimize the subordination of women, wives, daughters, just women overall. During the 19th century, which is what this book is about, this this portion, this era of time, rebellious women performed counter readings. Of this misogynistic tradition. So they. reconceptualize Lucifer. As a feminist liberator of womankind. And then Eve became a heroine. So in these reimaginings. Of the story. Satan becomes an ally. In the struggle against the patriarchy. Which is supported by God. And all of his male priests. Wonderful male priests. That we have in this movie. So there was that notion. Like Jess was saying. That women are particularly sensitive or gullible easily persuaded by the wiles of Satan which is a really really old view and we know prominent Christianity so when you twist the tail a little bit and you look at it from a, just a different perspective it actually can be quite empowering and you see Eve's ingestion of that forbidden fruit as an act of rebellion against Adam against God so when I watched the movie I actually saw that type of thing happening I was like well they are the strongest most intelligent, like they're not phased by this weird stuff that's going on. So that's why they were infected and they were the ones chosen to bring about all this bad stuff in the world. So that's where I started leaning, what I started leaning towards, which I thought was interesting again, that like, I went that way, you went a different way, but they're all, you know, they all kind of, they make sense within the, con- like the concept of the movie. Mm-hmm. And so going more into that whole thing about satanic feminism. So, there's like the Church of Satan and the Satanic Temple. Those are newer organizations. So, they don't worship the devil, which I assumed they would. But again, I never looked into it. I've been an atheist my entire life. So, I thought, well, if it's some kind of spiritual, religious thing, I'm just not interested because I don't believe in Satan or God. So, I'm just not going to be into this. But they instead see Satan more as a symbol Of like being an individual, liberty, pride. You're a free thinker. You can have bodily autonomy. You know the individuality. They reject abstinence and the constraint of all traditional like organized religion. So, I found that to be something that I just keep coming back to, and I saw that in in the movie essentially. So I thought that that was really amazing because it's all about empowerment and not oppression, which I can definitely I respond really well to.
1: <laughs> and that's actually the other element and something I'm probably future revelation of one of my blog posts coming up in the next couple of months is going to be about uh, the idea of the concept of satanic feminism and kind of seen throughout this film and other films that we've watched. Which I think is really interesting. You brought up a really good point about how these women were chosen ones to bring about what we presumed was an evil into the world. So what's interesting is that we're told that this entity is evil. That we are given only one information from one priest who doesn't seem to have the best kind of mind a frame of mind it's just it's really interesting how it is saying that oh this is evil this whole atmosphere of what's happening to us this is really evil when we don't really maybe this could have been a change for humanity that could have been a change or a transition or something that would change to a higher level but you know what i mean like this idea that we only believed it was evil because an organized religion told us it was evil a bunch of dudes said it was evil yes right like (laughs) (laughs) one priest or the the brotherhood of silence you know for many eons even though they kept this huge evil away from everyone and never told anyone a thing which is like something that bothers me in all kinds of different types of like religious types films or just like oh we've known about this significant evil that could destroy the world but well, we kept it quiet from everyone because we wanted to protect the world. But now it's just going to hit the fans, so we need people to know because we can't deal with it anymore. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. Really? <laughs> Classic. <laughs> <Why>? Classic. <laughs> I know.
0: I know. Yeah. God. They have to bring science in to help them out. Interesting.
1: <laughs> right? Right? And typically science and religion are at odds, but totally. since it's not really... The devil, and since this and Jesus is actually really a humanoid alien, it just makes sense to bring scientists to figure out this evil. Which, when you watch the film again, you're like, Why do they need physicists to figure out this evil ooze? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's just bring in all of the science, like, all the science we know.
1: <laughs> all these scientists are, are being brought in to study this evil ooze. Like, okay, <laughs> <sighs> uh,
0: so for. Prince of Darkness, we can see the merging of, you know, what H.P. Lovecraft and John Carpenter enjoy blending of the old, which is, you know, religion, the occult and the new science, which is really neat. So what, you know, coming back to the whole cosmic horror Lovecraftian influences. So the origins of this evil is from space, right? It's from a very human like alien race, also love aliens. So the origins of maybe hu- yeah, of humankind is coming from the cosmos. Yes, uh, as I know now, it's very Lovecraftian. And the overall atmosphere and the mood of the movie, obviously it's very serious, a sense of foreboding, and of course depicting characters under metaphysical siege or in, or in the potential Armageddon. But it ends up being Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> or at least... You think it's going to end well, but then it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly,
1: right? Like, you know that that last scene when you see Danforth come out, you're like, the fact that it's like almost like they were being, like those scenes, like the dreams that they were mm. having, that they're actually being warned of what's going to happen. Oh. So really, by the priest smashing the mirror and not allowing Danforth to come out, he brought about the end of the world. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> because
0: Interesting. He, he
1: trapped her in there, and so we see at the end, like, the whole idea that she's coming out, and they talk about how, like, oh, well, now she's possessed by the evil, right? Because there was this whole one article I read that, like, oh, the images, the dreams are all from a future, and they're trying to warn them, like, this yeah. is what's going to happen. And so, ultimately, the warnings of the future were just completely disregarded because... Totally, you know. So I always yeah. Nobody really talked about those dreams. I thought was odd. No, they talked about like you really only like they talked about the the one time when the priests and Doctor Barrack were like, oh, you know, this whole shared dreams and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. you know, like, may, and they're like, maybe it's a message from the future. And you're like, mm, okay, well, and then nothing. Exactly right. No one really listened to it. I found this film interesting too in the. Like all the all the characters showed some semblance of very Lovecraftian ideas at work in the sense of, you know, you have the rational thinkers trying to figure out what's going on, they're trying to understand an unseen or unknown entity or horror. You have your so that's your in your academics, but then you also have the people their will breaking they you see they're kind of like they're kind of losing their sanity in the sense of like they want there's the guys who want to get out they, they don't want to be involved with this anymore they want to walk away from it you have and i cannot remember his name but he is the one uh car- one the one actor who he ha- he starts questioning his he's like he's she's trying to use his face to keep him from being he gets possessed and he is like his whole lot he's like he completely questions his faith but it kind of like in the sense of him questioning his faith he's able to completely not be possessed by the the evil entity hmm. and right. so I thought that was really interesting like just the whole like like, really, it's interesting how the men seem to kind of break down the quickest, right? Because you also see Completely. Um, Danforth's love interest. She's trying to keep it together. And the other guy who is all about, you know, wanting to drive his Porsche and Corvette and stuff like that. And was always complaining all the time and trying to hit on all the other women. Totally. So... A lot of this film has definitely a lot of strong Lovecraftian elements to it and also that eerie music that plays along with it. But I always, well, I saw like in this time around watching the the observations I had about the women, once again, to me, it was another idea of how uh, there's this religious depiction of evil. How it likes to take something that they doesn't completely understand, so they create this thing called like. So John Carpenter has this anti-god, but in you know in the context of the film, the anti-god is known as Satan, and so Satan is actually just an evil entity that was trapped by another ent- hu- humanoid entity known as Jesus, and that these this is uh, that technically we're involved in a cosmic war that this is cosmic warfare for our souls it's always about our souls it always comes down to our souls uh, <laughs>
0: gotta <to> save them
1: <laughs> yeah but in the end we know we both in the end that we know that regardless of whatever they did to prevent this evil from coming they it was not enough and that it was gonna come and that and that's what i feel like the dream represents in the end is that the end is not. Totally. there's
0: nothing you can do to stop it
1: god damn those dreams no, like, I no, can't even dreams. think <laughs> about them they
0: absolutely horrified me and the fact that that movie ended with that kind of sequence I had to turn all the lights on immediately oh really eh yeah yes oh, no, yeah, there's yeah. something about it that just got deep inside me that really horrified me there's a lot of elements how they filmed it how it sounds the like looming dark image in the building and I was like mm-mm mm. Oh, I just, I absolutely fucking loved it. It was so horrifying to me.
1: And okay, here's something that always I always find interesting. So whenever you have a secret brotherhood or secret organization that is like <laughs> protecting the world from evil, why is it that there's a million fucking candles everywhere? Why does it look like an actual shrine to this thing instead of like let us like like let us like put this in like the darkest, most disparaging room ever. Let's not make it look pretty. Let's not make it look cuz in a way I'm like the kind of is comforting in a weird way do you know what i mean like i feel like i've seen films like this i'm just like why do they make it look like an attractive room you want to be in if this is supposed to be some kind of entity of evil this should be the most cold sterile room in the world there should be like (laughs) locks and like all kinds of things all over it you should not have like candles and beautiful books and stuff like that all around it like it just doesn't make any sense to me well they may they it may horrify them but they
0: still seems like essentially worship it in some way so yeah. Yes,
1: exactly. And that's what I'm just thinking. So maybe like the actual brotherhood of Silence, and so maybe the whole and this will probably like blow like Father Loomis's mind. Maybe the whole church was in on it to begin with. Maybe. And that's why it was never <laughs> talked about. You wonder that, right? <laughs>
0: why haven't they told anyone about it?
1: Yeah. Why isn't it like why is it just one priest that's going in and stopping this? If this was like a whole actual academic like, epidemic or something like that, there would be like. Like the whole Roman Catholic Church would be on that church like crazy and they would be doing all those things. Why are they just like, oh, we'll send one priest in to take care of this? And really, they're just like, nah, he's just gonna, he's just the key to bring it all about. We're just waiting for it to happen.
0: Totally. They, I don't know if you know this, but I, but religion really likes chaos. So that's probably why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thrive on and, drama and chaos. So that makes sense yeah. to me. <laughs>
1: And now I'm going to get a million emails saying how blasphemous I am. (laughs)
0: Perfect.
1: Let's do it. Let's do
0: it. So, are we ready to get into In the Mouth of Madness? I am ready. Let's do this.
1: Absolutely mad. The riots began because the stores could not meet the demands of Sutter Kane's novel In the Mouth of Madness. Kane disappeared two months ago without a trace. Isn't the guy that writes horror books. You can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. I need to know if he's alive or dead, and I need that book. It's a setup. It's a setup. I just have to work out how it's set up. Kane's writing has been known to have an effect on his readers. See this? It's a map. This whole thing has been staged. You just get out. This is not reality. It's all happening for real, Trent. <laughs> <sighs> mom all right so my story for in the mouth of madness was actually like i randomly picked this up on blu-ray around halloween again and i knew it was part of john carpenter's apocalypse trilogy so i was like hey good deal i'm gonna pick this up and watch it and i did
0: (laughs) i love that so many of your stories about movies are just that they're like i found it cheap around halloween and then i watched it (laughs) (laughs) started my life (laughs) Uh, so I saw it for the first time in the 90s when it came out Ooh. And I, yeah, I watched it a bunch of times in the 90s I hadn't seen it in likely over a decade You know, when you've been watching the movies for a long time it's, There's a lot of things that stuck in my head about it uh, But I had not watched it in a really long time So it's almost like watching it for the first time Because there's going to be so much nuance and aspects of it that you don't remember and definitely a lot of things that I did not remember at all. So I w- it was going to be a, a real treat for me to rewatch, Which was really exciting. Because I ended up really, really enjoying it. And I forgot so many aspects about it. Um, so what I liked about it is Sam Neill. Always. Always and forever. Sam Neill, I love you. Pl- please have more roles in horror. Please. Hello, Event Horizon. Uh, talking to you. Yes. <laughs> I... Really enjoyed the story. I actually, anything that has to do with novels and like horror novels and people, you know, making those, you know, stories come to life in reality. I'm just really into that kind of trope a little bit. Uh, I didn't realize how many monsters were in this movie. I totally forgot, but how fucking cool were those monsters? Ugh. I love monsters and all those practical effects that were in that movie. Wonderful! I love practical effects, and the metal as fuck opening and closing credits. Who knew that it was going to be so metal? I don't know, <laughs> but I was so pumped as soon as it as soon as those opening credits roll. Like, oh yeah, I'm in for a good time. Yeah, and then it was a good time. A good
1: time. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, <laughs> it is a good film. I'm not saying like. I love how Lovecrafty in that film gets to the end when, like, when they finally get to Hobbs End and like all the shit that starts happening in that. And we're like, oh yes, this is very Lovecrafty and this is very like. I feel like they're in Dunwich right now or in this one other village, and so I really like how that happens um, throughout the film. The music is really good once again. A John Carpenter score being added to it. And like, like Kelly, I agree with Kelly. The metal score in the beginning and the end because <laughs> it seems like, yeah. Just kind of random too, at the same time too, because the way the film is going, and it's just like this crazy, this good metal ending. Yeah, the only thing, and I'm just going to jump into what I dislike about the film, is sometimes I felt it boring in the sense, like in the beginning. I found the beginning boring, like as he's trying to figure things out, but at the same time too, it's kind of creepy. Like when he has like the dreams, when he's reading the books in his house, and he has like the one dream after the other of like the guy seeing the cop like beat up the guy in the alley and he keeps like walking into the alley and then he wakes up and like, he sees like the image of the cop beside him and then he wakes up again and he's like oh shit but i did find like mm-hmm. getting to the end like getting to that ending where all the stuff starts really happening i found that took some time and i found like a kind of lost a lost interest and that time and like which is actually really interesting that this happens, and this is why i feel like this is a good lovecraftian inspired film because That happens when I read Lovecraft sometimes, is that a lot of really interesting stuff does not happen till the very end of Lovecraft's short stories. And you have to find, like, you have to wade through the beginning that can be a little tedious and a little boring. And then all of a sudden, like, just shit starts hitting the fan and it gets interesting. And that's how I feel like the film goes with that.
0: I didn't
1: find the score that... Great. I
0: found I forgot that it was in the movie a lot of the time. So I didn't feel like it was Carpenter's strongest score. Maybe I'd listen to it on its own. uh, But overall, I definitely would have loved a more kind of iconic score in the movie. Um, Generally, the acting was fine. But I loved Sam Neill's acting and Charleston Heston. Um, I thought they were great. Everybody else's acting was fine. <laughs> but mainly, I would have loved a bigger, bigger, better John Carpenter score. Mm, I agree. More John Carpenter score, please. <laughs> so a huge theme. So I read in <laughs> HP, H.P. Lovecraft is this concept of losing sanity, becoming insane. Which, as if you've seen in *The Mouth of Madness*, is the huge overarching theme in that movie. So, the theme of losing sanity is, re- you know, in Lovecraft is all about you know sanity's fragility and the vulnerability of it. So, characters in Lovecraft stories are un- completely unable to cope mentally with the absolutely extraordinary and almost incomprehensible truths that they witness, hear, or discover. The strain of, for them of trying to cope, as you, know, you see in Lovecraft that he illustrates, is impossible to bear and then the insanity takes hold of them. So whatever truth it is that they discover or uncover, it does differ from tale to tale, but the common theme or the common denominator, the connection between them, is that despite whatever the hell it is, it's so horrible, it's so awful that the protagonist wishes he had never gone searching in the first place. <laughs> yep. <laughs> because when you find out, and it's awful, and it's definitely challenging those social norms, and never, your traditional social beliefs and constructs, that drives them
1: insane. So, like uh, Kelly said, losing sanity is a big theme, a lot of Lovecraft's work. There's also this idea of the atmosphere of dread, which a lot of his work is propagating the idea of a sane person faced up against otherworldly threats that appears to who then appears insane due to their newfound knowledge. So Lovecraft's work, he likes to fall into the realm of a weird fiction where there's like this blend of fantasy, sci-fi, and horror that elicits a certain type of fear in different readers. And when, when Lovecraft believed that the fear of the unknown is the oldest and strongest type of fear and it's not about what is found by who or what may have created that horrific image it is is if that unknown fear is still around and that sense of dread that fills the reader or it fills the protagonist with that sense of fear that or that that sense of knowing and many of Lovecraft's characters, they go insane, or they're perceived to have gone insane by the fellow characters around them. And the character's insanity makes the reader, ourselves, doubt the validity of the narrative. The reader has to then suspend enough disbelief to accept the character's claim of or their, their story. So a lot of times when you read a Lovecraftian story, the, usually the character, as I said earlier, is usually found in an insane asylum in the beginning or they say like i have this crazy story i'm not insane this is what happened or they will and this really drives me crazy because i love this, the short novella at the mountains of madness and they talk about the character talks about seeing this unknown thing and they can never explain what they seen but they just know that it drove them insane and they can never and it just it drives me crazy because i'm like well just tell us what you saw but like, it they can't even talk about it because it just they're like you would never believe it like I'm not I'm insane I'm not insane but it it sounds insane so what was really interesting is that this whole idea of the losing of the loss of sanity which is very prevalent in H.P. Lovecraft's work and was very prevalent in this film in the mouth of madness I found this really interesting article by uh, Tini Najdini who wrote about the origin of madness a philosophical review of the film in the mouth of madness I thought this was really interesting because it addresses on some philosophical interpretations of this film so madness itself is manifesting in a material form as we see in Trent's journey in the sense in that he's the sane insurance investigator to a patient and he so he goes from being the sane sane he is a sane insurance investigator to being a patient in a psychiatric hospital and we see that the seeds of madness in Trent are, are planted by Sutter Kane in his book Hobbes and Horror and In the Mouth of Madness and the author believing that madness is an abstract thing that didn't enter the material world until he wrote about it and that the presence of madness is due to his books and that they're now and that his books now make the idea of madness viewable and spreadable and will continue to spread until it reaches its final form. So what's interesting is that this uh this author of this article she writes that the fullest form which every single being strive for is equal to life because it supposedly represents an achievement of completely being oneself as Hegel implied in the ph- feminology of spirit so heigel is a german philosopher and the phonology of spirit is his most discussed philosophical work and is a book that was an exposition of the coming to be of knowledge focusing on topics of metaphysics epistemology esp- Epismology, I can't even say that part. epistemology, I don't know, freaking. Physics, ethics, history, religion, perception, consciousness, and political philosophy. So, what they're trying to say is that what is often forgotten is that the way to the fullest form is violent and painful, and that it const- constantly requires analysis of what one already achieved. In this analyzing process, the defective representation must be abandoned and destroyed. Hegel would then further assert, only by doing so can you continue to find a new and better representation. So what, they're trying, so what this author is trying to say is that Kane's first book that he ever wrote in his series was is not the perfect representation of madness. And that his new book, In the Mouth of Madness, builds off his first and corrects any flaws and becomes more powerful when you open yourself to it and it drives you insane. So what we see in the movie is Trent is struggling with his self-examination of by which the madness inspires them. It challenges the societal norms and values that abandoning them leads to inner stability being shaken along with the stability of society, thus leading an insane individual to be isolated by the rest of society and be seen as a deviant so the film itself so quote here from the author is the film itself shows that knowledge transformation is violent because it requires potential receiver to destroy what they already know before this new knowledge can rest in their mind as a faculty would say however such violence is mostly tolerable if not acceptable in almost every society so definitely something I had to wrap my mind around I'm still wrapping my mind around this philosophical idea of madness in the mouth of madness but I'm understanding it now as I'm talking about it again um after I've done my research it's like okay yes. Yeah, so Senator Kane wrote a book about madness but he keeps but each book was not perfect and he needed to destroy what he believed madness to be to create this ultimate book in the mouth of madness and as people got to became to understand it, it drove them insane as well because it challenged all their societal norms. It challenged everything. And once again, we see how insane people are treated. They're isolated and they're pushed away from a society, but in a way they just had their norms challenged by something else that opened their mind up to a newfound knowledge.
0: And as we know with H.P. Lovecraft, once you discover the truth, it drives you insane. And people start acting super wacky and Killing each other and it pretty much destroys society
1: as we know it. Exactly. Exactly.
0: (laughs) That is a great article and I would love to read the full thing. So if you can forward it to me, that'd be great. I will. Perfect. In the mouth of madness. What? What a movie. You know, it, I've read that it is the most, and maybe like one of the best, like Lovecraftian style movies. I haven't seen a lot, but once I did finish watching it, I could I could see where these people are coming from. There's so much of it. It plays with the deconstruction of time, space, reality, not to mention those monsters again. That aspect in the ending where they open up the portal and those horrifying monsters are like running as much as they could run down that long hallway after Trent is actually quite terrifying those oh that I didn't feel as much fear in that moment as I do the Prince of Darkness but there was a moment I was like that actually is quite horrifying if you could be that person in the moment Ugh, it was really fantastic
1: yeah it reminded me of like an element I like of reading like the Dunwich horror and when they talk about the one elder god coming out through the portal and you're just like oh dear god oh dear god yeah this is not totally. good <laughs> totally and like under if if that was
0: reality And here we are learning that that is a thing that exists. Yeah, I I could see going insane. That's just terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) So I read more Anna Powell. Did a lot of work with John Carpenter. And like I said, with his work with H.P. Lovecraft. So John Carpenter doesn't 100% completely mirror Lovecraft's view of the human race, which is like weak and insignificant. But they both have those apocalyptic visions for their stories uh, with you know the persecutions of humans being you know coming down from cosmic demons demons we'll put in quotations cosmic beings that really want to invade earth and in the mouth of madness compared to uh, H.P. Lovecraft so in Lovecraft's work you have the Necronomicon as a grimoire or a key or a guide to gateways and transitions so, Cain's novels, in, in the Mouth of Madness, act as an actual literal gate, where abominations, they manifest, and then they eventually replace you know, our normal lives with the diabolical virgin, right? Striving people insane to facilitate the victory of the old ones, essentially. They don't necessarily use all those exact same words, but it's that general idea that is so similar. Those books are acting as that grimoire or that key, that gateway into the world. And it comes down to close to the ending where you have, you know, Sutter Kane saying to Trent, you are what I write. And then Trent sends, says to Cain, I know what I am. I'm not a piece of fiction. And, you know, he's standing by that dripping, slimy door. Uh, Kane turns into paper and he like tears himself into the hole that turns into the gateway as editor Linda Stiles is reading the book and making everything happen. That is so Lovecraftian. So I read again, right? It's it's all coming together for me now, which is really really cool, you know. And of course, all the monsters are so Lovecraftian—they're amorphous, slimy, tentacle monstrous beings, or unholy abominations, right? It's so crazy. Also, let's see, Prince of Darkness in the Mouth of Madness in Kane's novel. There's the old desecrated church, which apparently is a common site for all of these conjurings and rituals to to occur. Hello, church and religion. We come back to you time and time again. (laughs) What evil things, evil secrets are you hiding?
1: Always.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Haunter of the Dark was a large influence uh, for a job competitor of In the Mouth of Madness. The narrative is really quite similar Uh, in haunter of the dark the writer character in haunter of the dark is interested in the occult which discovers a cult involved with a church it haunted by evil and there's this ancient artifact that raises the evil demon demons from the depths of space and time so that was his kind of one of his influences for it uh, which was quite interesting sounds like a good read and coming back to you know in the mouth of madness is stressing the deep space origins of horror. The origin of evil is in space, just like in Prince of Darkness. So there's some wonderful similarities between them. Do we believe in aliens? I know I do. Oh my god, <laughs> it's terrifying! Me. We all come from aliens <laughs> from space. <laughs> There's <laughs> like really, really cool comparisons and makes me want to read some Lovecraft. So that's neat. Nice.
1: <laughs> nice. The fact that I hear you say that you want to read some Lovecraft just like warms my little black heart. <laughs> <laughs> it can't be that surprising.
0: Me learning about how grim all this is. Please. I love bleakness. So it's
1: great. Very bleak stuff. Very bleak. Yeah. So. When I watch these films, and once again, I think I'm just taking it from, I think it just picked up on something in both Prince of Darkness and in A Month of Madness, is that the feminist aspect of these films, and really, like, analyzing the various female characters that we see come in from these films. And what's interesting is that Prince of Darkness, uh, while it has Lovecraftian elements to it, it has a very different Lovecraftian element to it, that there are four strong women in Prince of Darkness. That is actually not Lovecraftian. Uh, When women show up in Lovecraftian novels, if ever they are usually just seen as a, a female figure that just helps move the plot along which is exactly what the character of styles did in in the mouth of madness as the editor she literally had no control or of her actions or agency from in the film because we end up finding out that she is literally just there to kind of drive the plot along to bring trent to Sutter kane to kind of help bring about this end of days this apocalypse is that she was just a character of Sutter kane's imagination or in a pawn in his game to bring about the end of the world, which essentially he was also just a pawn of these ancient ones who had told him, like his, like they tell me what to write. I'm just doing what they are telling me, which is very Lovecraftian because. And this is actually something that's been brought up in uh, talks about Lovecraftian horror is this the absence of women in his work in his works. And we also know that, you know, as Kelly brought in earlier, his you know Lovecraft was known as a bit of a, a racist and um, in terms of, but he also had some like interesting relationships with women or and around women. And so we don't see a lot of female, we don't see any female representation in Lovecraftian novels. I think there's only there is only one elder god that is female and they are usually known for bringing in more monsters into the world and that's I'm not, I mean I'm not even gonna say the name right it's like Shubgu Negaroth or something like that is the only female elder god and any other females that show up in Lovecraftian works are just like I said they're usually just secretaries or they're just like kind of there to move the plot along with that's about it that's the element of it i think that's interesting that in the mouth of madness the character of styles was very common to that idea known in lovecraftian work oh that's
0: it's amazing to hear you say that because again i don't know that much about lovecraft i've just heard little bits about you know not having women really in any of the stories so i didn't see how much of a great i guess representation or lack thereof you know meaning that she is a great representation of what women are to lovecraft and lovecraftian tales so that's interesting as to me when i first watched it though she kind of falters at the end i think her character i mean i found her intelligent she does have a really kind of high important job she's like the best editor ever as they state in the movie so she is is powerful and prominent in the role that she has within her job. I found her quite observant and intelligent, and I think she has that feminine paranoia that we that I talked about when we were uh, talking about Nancy Thompson and all the final girls that cuz she's the first one to question whether or not Kane's work is actually real. I mean, everybody starts having these kind of hallucinations, these delusions her and Trent, but she's the one thinking is this actually happening? Whereas Trent is the opposite. That's That says, you're like, no, 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 no. This he just like shakes it off until like the bitter, bitter end. Until there were literal monsters chasing him down a hallway. <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah, no, this is real. And now he's insane. <laughs> um, but, you know, she didn't seem to get to that point. She wasn't locked up in any way. But there's that point where she says... What scares me about Kane's work is what might happen if reality shared his point of view. Reality is just what we tell each other it is. Sane and insane could easily switch places if the insane were to become a majority. Yes. You would find yourself locked in a padded cell wondering what happened to the world. But Trent, of course, brushes it off. He's like, meh, that's not going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. But then soon we know where he ends up, right? You know, all we have left to do, just wait for the, you know, the insane and the sane to swap out, which, as we know, ends up, ends up happening. So that's kind of how I saw her. And then she turns into an absolutely horrifying creature.
1: (laughs) Absolutely horrifying, contorted thing. And that's a, another interesting element that I find in the film. So yeah, we see this character of Styles moving the plot along, but then when we think about like, okay, well, how are typically women representative films? And I, it brings me back to the idea of Barbara Creed's The Monstrous Feminine, in the sense of the three women, the three female characters that we see throughout this movie are portrayed in, monstrous, in a monstrous way in some shape or form. We have Mrs. Pickman the old elderly woman who just seems so sweet and kind and yet she had... She you sure know, did. Right? But she had this like <laughs> complete deviant undertone to her. And this whole disguise where, you know, at, at the end where she has her husband chained to her um, at the desk there. And then you later on hear oh. them down in the basement. She's turning into like this tentacly thing coming out of her and she's killing her husband. You're just like, mm-hmm. OK, sweet, innocent old lady who runs a B&B is actually a crazy deviant monster killing people. OK, check one monstrous woman in this film. Uh, the little girl mm-hmm. who when we see them chasing the dog and then we see them later on when she's speaking to, to Styles and be like oh well you're my mommy and stuff like that and she's turning into like the little girl's face is turning uglier and uglier and uglier and she's leading the pack of all the kids to you know chase after the dog and to go into the boys so it's like okay young little girl uh, kind of like a bringer of truth and knowledge but she's monstrous she's evil she's you know especially because she's like the typical you know blonde hair. Little cute little blue dress but ugh, evil evil and then once again styles female seductress she was used to bring trent to ha- hobbs ends and she tries to get him to take the story so like you said she understands she understands more than trent does in the beginning but it's interesting how She is, she's also being used as her her femininity is being used in a way to get Trent to believe. Because there's a couple scenes where she tries to kiss him and tries to get him to stay by like using her femininity. Mm, Yes, yes, yeah, great point, yeah. In in that way, and so I was like, well, this is really interesting because like, yeah, typically women in in a Lovecraftian story are just used as a bit of a plot point to carry along, but here's this idea of this of the monstrous feminine being used in these movies to sense of once again. Is this is there this inherent evil in women to help bring about the end of the world because we have this ability to link in that? You know what I mean? Like, and not even Mm -hmm. then, like, uh, almost too. like maybe an idea of liberation, but at the same time too not. Yeah, I don't I feel like she
0: would not be a great example of that, but definitely a great example of the, the the rest that you're saying for sure
1: yeah so i found the representation of women in this film really interesting the whole idea of the descendant to madness that was <laughs> really interesting too the whole idea of like reality becomes completely distorted or, or was was it the reality of what he knew that was a complete distortion or what the rea- and the reality of stutter kane knew all along the reality so i just i always love that stuff because like once again it's finding out the truth that you're never supposed to have known and now you do know so what do you do you literally just go insane And I like that idea of how that madness spreads and literally leads to the end of the world. Totally.
0: Mm -hmm. Which, as we know, and we've talked about over and over again, is that it's such classic H.P. Lovecraft. So what a great, great film. And so I feel like this film, so In the Mouth of Madness, is definitely an extension of a variety of recurring themes that we do find in overall John Carpenter's filmography. The end of the world, the loss of free will, the distrust of mass industry and global corporations, the cataclysmic resurgence of ancient evil, and then all of our homages to H. P. Lovecraft. FYI, did you know that the evil the church in the evil town of Hobbes End was actually called the Cathedral of the Transfiguration, which is in Markham, Ontario, Canada. It's in my neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) That beautiful, beautiful church is in right nearby me. It's about an hour away from me.
1: Do you read Sutter Cain?
0: Well, now it's time for Spencer's final thoughts. For me, I have to say, Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness, it, it shows... You know, John Carpenter's, you know, the pessimism that you can see in his films overall, just overall in all of his filmography, so much of it. And like, his characters and the heroes, the protagonists in the, in the movies, their inability to truly vanquish evil. So initially it seems as though they're going to have a positive ending, but then it turn, turns bleak when it seems that evil can either regenerate, it's just still alive, or it becomes victorious, like in the Mouth of Madness. The endings are bleak. I really, really enjoy bleak endings most of the time. If they're done well. Um, I just, I love darkness. I love bleakness. I don't like happy endings overall. I just want things to just be grim and horrific pretty much all the time. Unless you're what we do in the shadows and that's wonderful (laughs) you know I said that I've never read any HP Lovecraft but really it seems like it's just grim as fuck and it's really something that I can really get behind uh you know if I want to get into some stories and if I don't I don't have to put all the commitment of reading a whole actual novel which I am struggling with currently with reading more so Like, generally speaking. So, really, I can get behind that, you know, minus the lack of women and racist overtones that we talked about. So... But, you know, putting that kind of aside, I understand his in his influence overall in horror, horror literature, but in horror movies, especially these put on by John Carpenter, which, again, I, I hadn't seen Prince of Darkness, but I'd seen In the Mouth of Madness, and I just had no idea that these were Lovecraftian movies. So it just brings this really interesting, deeper element to them that I really have enjoyed, and I'm really glad that I watched them. I also didn't know that The Thing and these two movies was encapsulated in what's called the Apocalypse Trilogy, so thank you, Jess, for informing that. I learned that from your Dark Spectrum episode on, I think you guys did The Thing and something else? Yeah, so I had no idea that was a thing. So that's great to know. I love learning new things, and I really think, besides Assault on Precinct 13, that these three movies in the Apocalypse Trilogy are his strongest films. Hot damn. Those are some excellent, excellent movies. And in this research... It brought me back again to the concepts of satanic feminism which is something I I just I keep coming back to and I'm growing more and more into and I'm finding it incredibly relatable and something potentially that I might end up subscribing to if you want to choose a label but I'm really really curious about it and that's why that is kind of top of my list of a new book that satanic feminism book and just to read more about it because what an empowering way to look at life. And it seems grim and
1: I like grim things. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, the grimmer the better. That's your like new shirt. <laughs> That's my motto in life, actually. That's your motto like the grimmer the better. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so for me, in terms of my final thoughts in these two films and the research I've done, so I have always been a fan of H.P. Lovecraft, and if anyone's uh, checked out my latest blog post where I talk a little bit about his the influence of his works and how they've influenced other writers and other films, and just a style of horror that I'm really interested in. Atmospheric, it's dark, it's, as Kelly said, grim, this whole idea of cosmic horror that's just... You know, like, I do... Like, yeah, every once in a while, I I do want to see, like, a bit of a story where, like, there's a ghost haunting or something like that or something good comes about it. But sometimes I just want that horror novel that makes me think and that makes me really want to engage more with the material. And I find that with H.P. Lovecraft, I do that. I actually have to read, like, all his stuff. Like, he's got short stories or he's got, like, little short novellas. I find I have to go back and reread some sections because he tries to describe the undescri an undescribable horror, and that's so hard to do, and it really leaves you to your imagination, and that's what I really enjoy, and so this is what I really like about the two films, *Prince of Darkness* and *In the Mouth of Madness*, because. John Carpenter brings about his own style of filmmaking to really help bring those elements of an undescribable horror to the screen, which is really hard for directors to do. No one's been able to successfully do an actual like full adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's work. If anything, they just use elements of his story writing or his tales in their films to give us a more of a Lovecraftian element. But I've known for years that Del Toro has been trying to do in At the Mountains of Madness, like actually do an actual adaptation of that story. And he's shelved it twice because it just seems impossible to do. So I like being able to see certain elements of lovecraft being shown on the screen whether it's and john carpenter you know in the 80s and early 90s was able to bring that with these two films and i like the I, the the concepts that he's engaging with because also too in the mouth of madness whereas we didn't i mean i didn't uh, bring it up as much i like the idea how this concept of capitalism brings about the end of humanity because the fact that they just like pump out stutter Kane novels because we know that they're just you know they're hot sellers a hot sellers but yet is bringing about this madness into the world and once again uh, humanity is the source of its own destruction and we and, you know we see that time and time again in john carpenter's in john carpenter's work and that's what i love about that and yeah and I really enjoyed writing my first blog post about um, the origins of dangerous women, the original dangerous women. And, And it really did bring about an idea that I want to engage with further about how women are, not just like the whole idea of representation of women in horror films, but why is it that sometimes women are the ones who are chosen to be the the linchpin or the idea that moves the plot forward or why is it that women are in so this is something that I'm finding myself as I'm watching films now I'm really becoming more and more interested in seeing why how women are being depicted in not only in horror literature but also in horror films and I know everyone you know the final girl and this is a definitely a big theme in the horror community but it's definitely something I'm much more interested in now I'm going back and watching some of these films and having more of a interesting dialogue and thoughts about that so that's where I'm where I came from and writing that blog post and seeing those ideas in Prince of Darkness really engaged me, really brought me to engage with those ideas more. So that ends our episode regarding H.P. Lovecraft's influence on the renowned horror director John Carpenter and his films Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. We want to thank Dance with the Dead for our intro and outro music Robies, and Brandon for all his work on our promotional materials. Also, to all you listeners, we want to remind you to follow us on our website, spinstersofhorror.com, on Facebook at Spinsters of Horror. We're also on
0: Twitter at Horror Spinsters. We're on Instagram. Come check out our cool photos at Spinsters of Horror. As well, please, please, please rate and review us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and any podcasting app you listen to us on. And reminder... We have merch, so please visit T Public to purchase our T-shirts and buy stickers from our shop that that you can find on our website. Next month, we float into the horrific subgenre of space horror with explorations into alien and pandorum.
1: Mmm, my favorite. But until then, remember the future of fear is female.